Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Today is August 15th, 2022, at the time of this recording. Thank you so much for joining us today for our Kraken Report here at Generation Z. As you can see or hear, my setup is a bit of an upgrade from the standard format that I've been presenting from. And some of you might even recognize this base if you've been watching the channel. Today's report is catching up on stories from earlier in the month, as well as just from the past couple of days. We have stories from all over the world, starting with some lighter ones, and then we will progress into heavier stories about the landscape of world orders, emergencies, and conflict. We will end the episode with a dozen articles about viruses and global health. I'm saving these for last to give the audience a break from the relentless narrative. And you can choose to end the video earlier if you wish, if you're tired of hearing about these things. I've also chosen certain stories, not necessarily for their importance with geopolitics, but more so with the intention of providing a unique insight into how the cryptocracy, as Ani Osaru calls it at the Spiritual Shade Room, a dear friend of the show calls it, or as I call it, the geopolitics of world orders. But to lay out the news, which we must read deeper into. And lastly, before we start, thank you so much to you, the audience at home, for having, for being so supportive uh, with me doing the Kraken reports and commenting how much you're enjoying the deeper dives. And so today I will do my best to go a bit more into the insight as well as not being too biased. So without further ado, let's get started. Allow me to just share my screen and... Let's see. Okay. We should be good to go. I'm in the corner over here, right on. Let's try to... Well, okay. So first thing that we're going to be bringing up is I know that I covered this in one of the first Krakens that I did, but this is still a story that we need to always keep in the backs of our minds when we do the reports of what's going on in the world. And this article is from July 1st from The Intercept. How the Pentagon uses a secretive program to wage proxy wars. Exclusive documents and interviews reveal the sweeping scope, scope of classified 127E operations. I'm only going to re review the very first uh, paragraph of this just and, and, and simply just remember that this is public open source information. So small teams of U.S. Special Operations Forces are involved in a low-profile proxy war program on a far greater scale than previously known, according to exclusive documents and interviews with more than a dozen current and former government officials. So really, just keep that in mind and feel free to look at this yourself from The Intercept. And just remember that. Now we're going to carry on with the actual report today. First up. Uh, Cabinet heard of potential breakthrough with the Freedom Convoy protesters before the Emergencies Act was invoked. Source documents. This is from CTV News. And this is from uh, published August 11th. They updated it August 12th. This is about Canada. The night before the federal government invoked the Emergencies Act in response to the Freedom Convoy protests, the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor told him there is a potential for a breakthrough in Ottawa, court documents show. However, the Office of Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino said, quote, the potential for a breakthrough referred to negotiations led principally by the city of Ottawa with illegal blockades in the days before the act was invoked. 
And I'm bringing this one up uh, because, as they say, the heavily redacted documents filed in federal court as the government's use of the act faces a legal challenge detail the conversations cabinet ministers and government officials had in the days leading up to February 14th, when the Emergencies Act was invoked for the first time in Canadian history. So for those of you that were paying attention to this, they invoked the Emergencies Act. Uh, turns out that the RCMP and all of the authority figures, they didn't actually ask for the emergency measures to be enacted. And here we have that they actually were talking about there being a breakthrough with the Freedom Convoy, as in, well, I guess that's a little ambiguous, but it sounds like they really did not need to invoke the emergency measures. But we will still keep up to date on what's going on here because it would be nice if we actually, if these elected officials were held accountable for their excessive uh, use of the emergency measures. Okay, on to the next one. This is one of those stories that I'm including just because, well, it's fun. The, the headline says, the same Joe Biden suddenly looks different. Interesting. But the article is actually about the President Biden and his winning streak. So the article simply says, Joe Biden is no more or less capable a president than he was two months ago. His staff is no more or less competent. But suddenly, images of Biden as a feeble septuagenarian atop a mismanaged White House have given way to those of an experienced leader smiling behind aviator sunglasses whose battle-tested team has delivered on a range of national priorities. A winning streak does that for you. This is, of course, from CNN. So we see that they're referring to his presidency as a winning streak. But what I find interesting about this is the same Joe Biden suddenly looks different almost as if there's a bit of a subtle hint about the potential of cloning here. And this is an interesting comparison of images between the killed uh, ISIS, or sorry, the Al-Qaeda leader, uh, Ayman al-Zwahari, who was the Egyptian surgeon that the United States launched a drone strike against, and the, an image comparison of Joe Biden and that individual. I just find that fascinating there. But I won't go too too much deeper into that, but simply just reading the headlines and looking in just that alone, looking at deeper, deeper analysis of that. Next up, we have Liz Cheney's husband is a partner at the law firm defending Hunter Biden. And this is from the New York Post. Okay, well, that's fascinating. Wyoming GOP rep Liz Cheney's husband is a partner at the law firm now representing Hunter Biden. Philip Perry has worked at Latham & Watkins since 2007 and focuses on white-collar cases, commercial and Supreme Court litigation, according to his company bio. Another Latham partner, Chris Clark, has been representing Hunter Biden since December 2020, but Cheney's husband's involvement at the firm had not been previously known. I guess this kind of just goes to show you that there's certain things, doesn't matter which uh, bird of the feather you belong to, there's still things behind the scenes that you are going to be supportive and involved with. And also just keep in mind that the Biden family is currently on vacation where Hunter is indeed with the family. So wouldn't it be interesting to be a fly on the wall at that family vacation? Next up. We have U.S. Senator Warren blasts the Fed for withholding trading records. 
This is from August 11th, Al Jazeera. U.S. Senator Warren blasts Fed for withholding trading records. The Massachusetts Democrat, in a letter to the Fed chair, said she is increasingly concerned about, quote, why you continue to withhold key information about Fed officials, quote, uh, end quote, financial trading activity from Congress and the public. Oh, my, my apologies. That was simply an apostrophe at the end of the word officials to quote that it's plural and possessive. So the she is inquiring about the Fed withholding key information about Fed officials, financial trading activity from Congress and the public. Fair point. Uh, U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren rebuked Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell for withholding information on trading by central bank officials during the pandemic and said an investigation into the matter by the Fed's inspector general was troubling. The IG report raises new concerns about the reasons why you continue to withhold key information about Fed officials' financial trading activity from Congress and the public. I'm sure that many of you know uh, the controversy surrounding Nancy Pelosi and her husband and their alleged potential insider trading. So here we have a U.S. senator calling the financial system out. So we'll see what happens. Next up, Reuters journalists in U.S. plan first strike in decades. The employees are planning a 24-hour strike as the company offered a 1% salary hike against 9% inflation. Thomas Reuters corporate, uh, corporation journalists in the U.S. are preparing to launch a day-long strike Thursday, the first walkout in decades among the media company's long union, unionized staff. And so this was from August 4th. And clearly, it's it's August 15th today, so there's been 11 days since then. I, I researched this up today, and there's no update on what's going on here. But good. If the writers, journalists want to go on strike, good. We will probably be better off without their fact-checking. Just saying. Next up, from CNN. The United States returns looted relics of extraordinary cultural value to Cambodia from August 8th. Now, if you can see at home, there uh, we've got some sculptures here. They look very nice. The interesting what uh, concept about this story is, as we will see, the antiquities, which had been taken from temples and archaeological sites during periods of civil conflict in the country, entered the international art market via an, quote, organized looting network, according to the U.S. Department of Justice. On Monday, at the time that this was published, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York hosted a repatriation ceremony for the works, with Cambodia's ambassador to the U.S., Kyo Chia, in attendance. So this is an interesting topic because we learn a little bit about the black market of antiquities and the world of arguably uh, laundering money through selling and buying ancient artifacts. And then as well, here's a clear example of colonialist powers stealing from ancient civilizations and long-established cultures. It's good to see that they're returning these artifacts. But this just goes to show you that here we're only looking, this is just mainstream, so it's only a little bit 
uh, as this final paragraph says, quote, we know that this problem goes much further, much deeper than the activity of one man. It is a global problem that involves wealthy collectors, private dealers, gallery owners, and some of the world's most prestigious places. So there you have it from the Cambodian spokesperson saying better than what I could say about the matter. Next up, from The Guardian. Number 10 admits Johnson will be only contacted if urgent while on holiday. Prime Minister believed to be in Greece on second summer break in three weeks amid zombie government accusations. What on earth does that mean? Zombie government accusations. Hmm. As the article says, Downing Street has admitted that Boris Johnson will not be working on his holiday unless he is needed urgently after he faced criticism for taking a second break abroad within three weeks amid the energy crisis. In his absence, two large removal lorries turned up in Downing Street on Monday, fueling expectations that he is likely to spend little further time in number 10. I guess that's the name of their parliament or the place where the prime minister resides. The prime minister is entitled to take furniture and fittings that he paid for in his refurbishment of his number 11 flat, theoretically included the Lulu little gold wallpaper that was initially funded by a Tory donor. Okay, I don't really know why I shared that part of the article, but whatever. Uh, so this one is interesting because as we've already reported, Biden is on a vacation and Trudeau is on a vacation. Are they really all on vacation going to separate places? Well, you never know. But I'm sure that they're stressed out and they do need a break from all of it. So I'll cut them some, flat, some, some slack. Next up, also from The Guardian. Chinese President Xi Jinping expected to visit Saudi Arabia next week. The planned gala reception is in stark contrast to the low-key audience afforded Joe Biden in June as ties between China and the kingdom grow closer. This is from August 11th. That's pretty significant. Um, this is one of the kind of the the landscape, the the foundational landscape of the geopolitics of world orders, with China getting cozier to Saudi Arabia as Saudi Arabia and the United States seem to be drifting more and more apart. Uh, and exactly as this article says here, like I just said. China and Saudi Arabia have been growing closer over two decades, but ties have deepened as Prince Mohammed accumulated power in the kingdom from 2016 onwards. Riyadh has defended China's treatment of its Uyghur Muslim minority and Hong Kong's draconian national security law, placing it at odds with the U.S. on key human rights issues. Right. Well, this is interesting, and we just have to stay tuned, and I look forward to reading about what goes on between uh, China and Saudi Arabia. Especially, I, I hope that it kind of brings down the oil prices here in Canada, because they are very high still. They've gone down a little bit, but it would be nicer to just be able to travel and not have to spend so much money. Next up, now this is a story that I was monitoring for a few days here because I am in Canada and I find found it very fascinating. And this is finally the, uh, instead of re uh, reporting the day-to-day -day stuff, I wanted to wait to see how it uh, was kind of uh, ending up. And here it is. Senegalese embassy challenges reports on diplomat beaten by the Quebec police as false. So uh, uh, the diplomat from the African country of Senegal was beaten up 
by police in Quebec. Originally, uh, the Quebec police said that the diplomat bit police officers and warranted them beating her up. But then turns out that Senegal says that that was not true. So let's look at the article here. The Senegalese embassy in Ottawa has come to the defense of one, its, of one of its diplomats allegedly beaten by police in Quebec, characterizing a provincial rental board ruling against her as one-sided and asserting media coverage of the case has distracted from harms she purportedly faced. The embassy released a statement on Twitter on Friday questioning media reports based on court documents ordering Niang Umu Kalsum Sal to pay a former landlord, landlord more than $45,000 for damage to a furnished home she occupied. Uh, it was noted that the media reported false and shocking information on her, the release stated. However, the interested party was a victim in her home of inadmissible police brutality in the presence of her underage children, which including one with special needs. Kalsum Sal, a first counselor at the Embassy of the Republic of Senegal in Ottawa, was detained and allegedly beaten on August 2nd in Gatineau, Quebec, across the river from Ottawa. Gatineau police said they arrested a woman with diplomatic status after she allegedly hit a police officer in the face, adding she was tackled to the ground after allegedly biting another officer. The Senegalese Ministry of Foreign Affairs has said the diplomat had to be hospitalized after being handcuffed and beaten by police. Uh, okay, so like, first, like right off the bat, like whatever, like diplomatic immunity, I guess, that's not a thing. Uh, there's also an unfortunate reality with uh, police authority in Canada and unfortunately, especially in Quebec, targeting uh, non-white, <clears throat> non-French speaking people. Um, so here's a clear, uh, example of kind of the disparity in how certain individuals are treated, but it is really shocking that, uh, the police in Canada, uh, treated such a diplomat, uh, this way. Moving on. Austria commits to neutrality, even as Russia destroys Ukraine. Neutrality remains popular domestically in Australia, which has sent humanitarian assistance and non-lethal weapons to Ukraine. Okay, well, not going to read more into that, simply just bringing the attention that Austria is uh, staying neutral. <clears throat> However, they are still sending humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. It would be really interesting, actually, and maybe I'll look this up for a future episode of just seeing to kind of catch us all. I, I've been deliberately avoiding the day-to-day -day stuff of Russia-Ukraine, as like we can see here. Keep reading. Ukraine-Russia war, list of key events. <clears throat> Sorry. Day 173. Well, I don't, I, I don't think our audience needs to be up to date on that. We can pretty much do a big summary of that. Maybe I'll do that in a future episode, the same way I did to Monkeypox. And we can look at a world map of where countries, uh, kind of like how, how world countries view what's going on there. But anyway, <clears throat> let me just grab some water here. Thank you. Right on. So next up, the U.S. Senate ratifies Finland and Sweden's NATO ascension. This is a uh, Russia-Ukraine war update. This is from August 4th. The Senate votes 95 to 1 in favor of Finland and Sweden joining NATO, making the U.S. the third, the 23rd of the 30 member states to approve. 
I just wanted to get a closer look at those maps. Because actually, that's another thing that I really like uh, to study is maps. Uh, sorry, uh, flags. Those aren't maps. Those are flags. And the, the study of flags, I believe, is called vexillology. And it's actually fascinating to, to me, at least, to look at flags. And that's another uh, topic that I plan on getting into, whether it's for the public side or for the members on Patreon, Generation Z slash Patreon. But this story, it is what it is. The U.S. Senate has ratified Finland and Sweden's ascension to NATO, the most significant expansion of the 30-member alliance since the 1990s amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And as we've talked about on the show, uh, it seems like Russia's whole invasion of Ukraine is kind of in response to NATO continuing to expand and breaching certain uh, treaties and agreements that they had. So here's a perfect example of that. Next up, oh, now this is a this is an interesting one. This is from the Daily Mail. So, you know, it's not the most legitimate source of information, but it's definitely legitimate enough. The long headline reads, Offsetting guilt. Eco-minded descendants of billionaire oil barons are paying hundreds of activists $25,000 a year to protest around the world because they feel, quote, a moral obligation to put Genie back in the bottle. Okay. Um, so let's go to this article then. Three American oil scions, not Zion, but Scion, and side note, the topic of Zionism and being Zionist comes from the word Scion, which means you inherit, uh, you're an inheritor. So to be Zionist basically means that they that you believe that you are entitled to that land. So three American oil Scions have been bankrolling mobs of eco-zealots who have terrorized the world by slashing tires, blocking traffic, and attacking firms. Eileen Getty, Rebecca Rockefeller, Lambert, sorry, Eileen Getty, Rebecca Rockefeller Lambert, and Peter Gill Case, who are heirs to the family's huge fortunes, are paying the salaries for thugs through their nonprofits in an apparent bid to offset their relatives' legacies. Getty, whose grandfather created Getty Oil, so far has splashed out $1 million through her California-based climate emergency fund. Lambert and Case, who are both members of the Rockefeller dynasty that founded Standard Oil in 1870, have forked out $30 million on the Equation campaign. They have put eco-activists from groups such as Just Stop Oil on the payroll for around 25000 each, as well as pumped money into the organizations themselves. Uh, this is significant because we need to know about the United Nations Agenda 2030, the Sustainable Development Goals, Obviously, the climate movement, the the green movement, the green energy movement, all of that stuff. And here you have the families that have been suppressing the clean energy, quote unquote, clean energy for a century at least. And now they're turning a new leaf. Interesting to note, which I will get the actual document for you in the next time I report about how the Rockefellers sold a lot of their oil shares and started to invest in renewable energy. So even as we shift to this green revolution, arguably the same corporations and families are controlling things. So yes, arguably it is better for the planet, but 
in the is it really going to make much of a difference only time can tell next up australian government says confident emission says they are confident the emissions target will become law and this is under the climate crisis headline for al jazeera the bill would enshrine in law election pledge to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 43% below 2005 levels. So the Australian government has said it is confident in greenhouse gas reduction target will be enshrined in law after negotiating amendments with senators from around the new administration's ranks. A bill to enshrine the center-left Labour's election pledge to reduce Australia's greenhouse gas emissions by 43% below 2005 levels by 2030. Sorry, my phone phone just froze there. Interesting. So as I said, you got to, uh, yeah, keep in mind about these laws and the uh, transnational corporations, the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, all of their uh, dealings with it behind the scenes. Next up, Brazilians protest for democracy as Bolsonaro threatens election. The protests take place amid concerns that Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, could refuse to accept election results. Thousands of Brazilians flocked to a law school Thursday in defense of the nation's democratic institutions, an event that carried echoes of a gathering nearly 45 years ago when citizens joined together at the same site to denounce a brutal military dictatorship. Very fascinating with what's going on in Brazil right now where you have the the leader of the country right now who is uh relatively nationalistic and against the globalist agendas uh and you could call him the trump of south america of south america that is how he has been compared to so people protesting here very well could be similarly aligned to the uh democratic party of people who are kind of along the woke uh, side of the geo of the political spectrum. Next up, Congo asks the UN mission spokesman to leave amid unrest. So I did a few stories on the Congo, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo and the United Nations. And here is kind of one of the climax stories from August 3rd. Congo's government has requested that the spokesman for the UN mission in Congo leave the country saying he has made inappropriate statements amid demonstrations against the presence of the UN peacekeepers. Yeah, and this is, we recently had a Zoom call on uh, the Generation Z uh, Patreon, which is where if you subscribe to the Patreon, we have uh, many Zoom calls a week, about uh, two to three. And this was brought up because we talked about, well, how much is NATO or UN involved in potential human trafficking? And I actually brought up the situation in Congo. And the citizens of Congo are upset because it turns out that peacekeepers are involved in some very disturbing stuff that peacekeepers really should not be involved with. And I won't say more than that because it's a YouTube public episode and I don't have the actual facts right in front of me, but you know what I mean. Next up, this story blew my mind because I was reading about the Sri Lanka stuff and reporting on it without actually having re read this name yet. So, from Al Jazeera, concerns as Sri Lanka arrests top protest leader Joseph Stalin. What? The arrest is part of an ongoing crackdown against people protesting against the government over the country's worst economic crisis in decades. Joseph Stalin 
is one of the top protesters in Sri Lanka. Now, like, I don't know what you guys think about reincarnation and uh, cycles of time and stuff like that, but like, what are the odds? That's a weird one to me. Joseph Stalin, the secretary of the Sri Lanka Teachers Union, was arrested from his office in the capital, Colombo, on Wednesday. He was arrested for participating in a large protest on May 28th to mark the 50 days since the launch of the Aragalaya, the Sinhala word for struggle, demanding the resignation of the government over the economic meltdown. Stalin is the most senior trade union leader to be arrested since Ranil Wickremesinghe took over the presidency on July 20th following the resignation of Gotabaya Rajapaksa on July 14th. And as we know, the International Monetary Fund is deeply entrenched in this. The World Economic Forum is deeply entrenched in this. The, the, the leaders were trying to push uh, the Build Back Better, the Great Reset, uh, all that stuff. And now I wonder, is Joseph Stalin going to be, like, is, is he also a part of that? Is this controlled opposition or is it just a name? Weird, but anyway. If we got any friends of the show that are in Sri Lanka that could give some insight into what's going on here, please. I hmm. Well, I just got a little notice on here that the recording may not happen, but let's continue on and I will try to figure it out. Uh, here is from Al Jazeera. Kenya election live news. William Ruto declared winner. Okay. I honestly, I don't know anything about what's going on in Kenya. I don't know the geopolitics of it, but uh, it is a very significant country in regards to the African Union and the geopolitics of Africa. And William Ruto has been declared the winner of Kenya's presidential election, defeating his rival Raila Odinga promising to work with all the leaders in the country. Well, all the best. I hope you are able to work together and come up with peaceful solutions and basically, uh, you know, persevere and prosperity to, to the people of Kenya there. Next up, Peru Prime Minister resigns as, investi as investigations target President Castillo. Peruvian Prime Minister... Annabel Torres suddenly resigned on Wednesday. Wednesday morning, amid, widely, amid widening criminal probes centered on President Pedro Castillo, who has grown increasingly isolated after one year in office. Torres said on Twitter his resignation was due to personal reasons. A lawyer, Torres was seen as one of Castillo's most loyal allies. Okay, so this is from August 3rd, so a little bit behind on reporting on this one, but Anytime a prime minister resigns, you got to wonder what's going on behind the scenes and more than just personal reasons. Speaking of which, Myanmar court convicts deposed leader Su Kyi in corruption cases. Su Kyi, already serving 11-year jail term in other charges brought by the military which deposed her government. 
A court in Myanmar has convicted Depot's leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, in corruption cases, adding six years to her prison sentence, according to a legal official. She already had been sentenced to 11 years in prison on sedition, corruption, and other charges at earlier trials after the military deposed her elected government and detained her in February 2021. And she is 77 years old at the time. It's... Uh, relevant to note that, uh, as we reported, Russia's foreign minister Lavrov is visiting Myanmar very soon and makes me wonder just what's going on there behind the scenes. Next up, and this is something that I've kind of been uh, hesitant to report on just because it is it is a, a very tough topic to talk about. U.S. President signs new executive order on abortion rights. Move seeks to support women seeking abortions to travel between states for the procedure after Roe versus Wade overturned. He signs the executive order that lays the groundwork for Medicaid to help women seeking abortions to travel between states to obtain access to the procedure. Now, because of the public episode, I'm not going to go too deep into this. We can definitely talk more about it on the Patreon side of things where, you know, it's a more open uh open community where it, it's just more open and uh understanding and not being censored so that's it just reporting on he signs the new executive order on abortion rights from august 3rd though next up ecuador blames organized crime for deadly blast in guayaquil President Guillermo Lasso declares a state of emergency in Guayaquil, where eight houses and two cars were destroyed. So as a theme in the, the Kraken reports, the states of emergencies keep uh, keep vigilant about these. The state of emergency will be in force in the southwestern coastal city from Sunday and will last for 30 days. Now, when something like this, you have to wonder, is it OK? Is it on the surface where, well, actually... Before I say that, let's just read here that the president declared the state of emergency in the country's second largest city after an explosion blamed on, quote, organized crime mercenaries killed at least five people and injured 17 others. OK, so organized crime mercenaries, are they mercenaries hired by the government? Are they mercenaries hired by the intelligence community of Ecuador to create violence and, de and uh, destabilize the region to justify uh, issuing a state of emergency? Or is it an authentic grassroots organized crime mercenary movement? Um, but yeah, um, they are said to be long involved in illicit drug traffic. And again, uh, oh, it is a declaration of war against the state, the president said. Well, it's, you know, keep in mind that we know that intelligence agencies have been long responsible for uh, illegal drug activity, which is used to justify war and pushing uh, more laws. So, you know, uh, just who knows what's going on really in that situation? Because we're not on the ground, so we can only offer some insight into the situation. Uh, where are we at in our stories? Okay, doing pretty good. I've got about five more of the geopolitics stuff and then hopefully we don't have any more tech issues and then we're going to end the episode with the uh, global health concern updates so thank you so much for being here 
I'm having a lot of fun and hope you are too. Election denier Mark Fincham wins Arizona GOP Secretary of State primary, NBC News projects. This is from August 3rd. Fincham, who continues to falsely claim that President Joe Biden did not win the 2020 election in the crucial swing state, is now a step closer to being its top elections official. Mark Fincham, a prominent 2020 election denier and an Arizona state legislator, has won the Republic has run the Republican Secretary of State primary. Okay, uh, Mark Fincham, a prominent 2020 election denier, he denies the election. Well, we can go, you know, looking at the 2016 election when Trump won, all the Democrats were saying it's a rigged election, it's unfair. And then in 2020, when when Trump wins, all the Democrats are saying, or sorry, uh, other way around in 20, uh, in 2020, when Trump loses and Biden wins, the Republicans all say that it was a rigged election and it wasn't fair. So it's definitely going back and forth. It is a little unfair that all of the Republicans are being labeled election deniers, but all of the Democrats seem to be in the right. Um, and I don't subscribe to either of these. I really, uh, I won't say I'm apolitical. I definitely do have certain views, but I don't subscribe to either the, well, firstly, I'm Canadian, so I don't subscribe either to the Democrat or Republican uh, platforms. It would be more so liberal or conservative, but I kind of feel like the the deep state has its tentacles all throughout all main political parties. So, you know, let them squabble. Next up, we have Mali says soldier death toll in Tessit attack has risen to 42. Mali has blamed the attack in the rest of central region, which drones and explosive laden vehicles. This article catches my attention for two things. First, the country of Mali, which is home to the kingdom of uh, of Mali, which is one of the richest kingdoms in all of history, in in previous civilizations, not currently. But Mali is also where the Canadian UN peacekeepers are very active, and yet there's still so many deaths and so much conflict. I wonder what the peacekeepers are really doing there. Second, I want to bring up that the Number 42 is about Jupiter, symbolically and numerically. So that's a fascinating one. I wonder if anything's going on that correlates between Jupiter's involvement in the astronomy world and Molly and these events. Because that's kind of the stuff that we go into with the cryptocracy uh, analysis of mainstream news. You look at the numbers and you look at the geographical locations and you look at what the numbers really mean, and it just provides some deeper insight into what is going on. Not saying that these are fake events or anything like that, but there's certain events that may be very well planned on a very deep level, a very deep esoteric occult level, that if you're uninitiated, you will have no idea that these articles are actually telling you a deeper story. So. Uh, my phone is recording this and it is about to die, unfortunately. So what I'm going to do is we're actually going to save the COVID and virology stuff for the future episode that uh, probably I will do on Wednesday, whether it's a joint cracking with Dave or on myself. 
but that's going to be a lot of fun. But I'm just going to continue to wrap up this geopolitical stuff here. And hopefully the recording goes all well. Uh, again, this is my first time doing on this new setup. So, you know, bound to have some issues. But these three articles are uh, connected here. And this is actually what we're going to end on. So this is the first one up is an exclusive interview between uh, Taliban leader Anas Hakini with Al Jazeera about their one-year rule. So allegedly, they say in, it, in the exclusive interview, his government would not allow armed groups to operate from its soil. As the article says, Taliban took control of Afghanistan last August, promising to bring peace to the country racked by decades of conflict and U.S. occupation. As the group is set to mark its first anniversary in power, concerns have been raised about the security situation in the country, with ISIL, or ISIS, managing to carry out several deadly attacks. Last week, an ISIL-affiliated killed a senior Taliban scholar. Just days before the killing, the U.S. drone strike eliminated al-Qaeda leader Ayman al Zawahiri raising concerns, uh, ways, raising Western concerns about armed groups finding a safe haven in Afghanistan. Um, so I would love to actually go deeper into this because it is fascinating. And honestly, it is best when uh, we have these situations to read straight up what these people are saying instead of relying on how the news interprets what people are saying. But this is an example that I just wanted to bring your attention where okay, I get it that certain people are are labeled as bad and all that, but it's interesting to just read their perspective and understand where they're coming from so that we're able to critically think about what situations are really happening around the world. And okay, so just wanted to bring that to our attention, the final two that we're covering here. Uh, Taliban celebrates Victory Day as Afghans face economic crisis. Afghanistan marks a turbulent year that saw the economy collapse, women's rights crushed, and a humanitarian crisis worsen. The Taliban marked the first, so from August 15th, the Taliban has marked the first anniversary of its return to power in Afghanistan as its members celebrated a day of victory, chanting slogans next to, to the former U.S. embassy in the capital, Kabul. Exactly a year ago, the group captured Kabul after a nationwide lightning offensive against government forces, just as U.S.-led troops were ending two decades of intervention in a conflict that cost tens of thousands of lives. So we're at the year anniversary of this. Okay, and as this next article goes on, this is what we're ending today's report on here. As the West puts Taliban on hold, Kabul eyes future in China and Russia. The killing of al-Qaeda leader in Kabul will add to mistrust between the Taliban and the West, prolonging the group's diplomatic isolation. Of course, Monday marks a year since the Taliban took control of Afghanistan after almost 20 years of U.S. occupation. Meanwhile, the Taliban's international isolation has not helped its cause. Oh, I did not know this here. Despite, repealed, uh, uh, despite repeated appeals and efforts by Taliban leaders, no country in the world has recognized the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan as the, as the country is officially known under Taliban rule. But what I want to bring up with this article is how uh, it is important, as the article says, it is important to examine how non-Western countries approach the Taliban government. Several of Afghanistan's neighbors, including China, Pakistan, and Iran, have accepted Taliban diplomats, along with Malaysia, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and Turkmenistan. 
In fact, Ashgabat, Beijing, Islamabad, and Moscow have even formally accredited Taliban-appointed diplomats underscoring how the Taliban's international isolation is relative. Okay, so let's see here. Where are we at? I'm going to stop sharing my screen. And I just wanted to bring... The, so we're ending on that article. I know a little bit more abruptly than what I had said, but I've just got to deal with my own technical issues on, on my end. And that is just a bit of some insight into the geopolitical situations going on, how you know the the BRICS alliance Brazil Brazil Russia India China South Africa uh have have been working really hard to actually kind of usher in a new world order but uh, an eastern world order to undermine the western uh world order that has been kind of controlling things uh militarily financially and almost every other way uh for the, you know since world war 2 if not longer but Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, this is uh, Riel from Generation Z. This is our Kraken Report, August 15th. Thank you so much for being here. Leave your comments down below. And I look forward to giving you more reports in the near future. Take care. See you all very soon.